You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we will not be talking about Doctor Who, so somebody else can. I'm JR. And I'm Simon. And we are sitting in the most ridiculously hipster service station on the Sunday on the way back from the Starburst Film Festival that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> you walk through the doors and everything's brown and cream. It's, it's very odd. It's like they're trying to make it a more natural... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's hideous. Even, even, even the WX Smiths inside is granary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, and there's just no chains. If you want to buy a cup of tea, it's... Well, oh, it was ridiculous. No string on the tea bag. String is bad for you. We will not put string on your tea bags. <laughs> and the milk and the tea... Well, I think the water they've used came from a nuclear reactor. Yeah. Which isn't very hipster, but... I've had to pour off the cup of tea away so I can put cold water in just so that I can drink it. It's a neurotic goat at the back that they milk. Oh, Probably. My God, what a place, though. Uh, and it's really odd. so busy. Mm. Probably because all these people... I don't know where we are, actually. Well, we're expecting it'll, the traffic to suddenly get incredibly dense towards Devon because yeah. it's just before the August bank holiday. It's so this Sunday. place is really busy. I can't imagine these mm. people have all driven in thinking, oh, I need homemade ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but then maybe they do. Maybe this is a famous... Just looking, just looking, the whole place is, is cut out the side of a hillside. Yeah. It's like a, it's it's a motorway services run by hobbits. Maybe people actually get in the car and get on the motorway just so they can come here. Yeah, maybe so. Where are we? Somewhere like Stroud or something. It's Gloucester, isn't it? Gloucester Services. Something now we've like said that, that yeah. people are saying, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, or maybe they'll be saying, oh, God, I'm not going there. So or maybe they'll be saying, oh, let's get in the car and let's go and find out. Head, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, well, uh, what have we got coming up? In a few minutes, in a couple of minutes, we've got the panel from the Saturday at the Starburst Film Festival with Phil Morris talking to Dick Fiddy. Um, and after that, something I wanted to do about three years ago, and finally I've got to do it. And actually, in the three years since I had the idea to do this, I think it's become more paramount, really, because... Well, Phil Morris has become this figure on the forums where they think he's some kind of robot who should be doing what they want him to do. And I think they forget, you know, a a few people on the forums forget that actually Phil Morris is a human being. So what I've done is I've actually talked to his wife for 20 minutes talking about what it's like to live with him. Mm -hmm. Which I thought, well, I've always thought the human angle is a more important angle to cover anyway, but... Well, the perception is that that he's be- he's become this caricature of this person who just goes around spending all their time looking for these film cans and hoarding them for yeah. for his own personal gain. 
Um, and there's a heck of a lot more to the picture, which which includes his wife and his family. So, and she, I, uh, well, the thing of it is, we talked for about fifteen or twenty minutes earlier in the day, and she was very chatty. And actually, it's that old curse of the red button. As soon as you press record, I think she was a bit uncomfortable in the situation, and it's like one sentence answers to start. But she does warm up a bit. She was obviously just slightly nervous of the record button I think Mm. but you do get a little bit of a picture of what it's like living with Phil Morris and what kind of a person he is and what kind of a a partnership they are and actually although I pretended he wasn't at the start of the interview he is sitting in and actually he was sitting there quietly pissing himself laughing throughout the entire thing wasn't he (laughs) but yeah he's there so you hear a little bit from him too they're very good company that's the thing as well they are really nice people well, we chat after um, we finished doing this interview. We probably sat with them for about another half an hour just chatting. Mm. And I know a few mm. other people had done earlier in the day, including Wynn, who we saw. He was there. And a lot of people who are listening to this will recognise uh, that name, Wynn Lewis. So, so um, oh, and after that, just five or six minutes that I managed to catch, we were going to do longer, but in the end... There was so much running around that we only managed to snatch five or six minutes. But also with Dick Fiddy, where I just talked to Dick about what he does, so you get a bit of an impression of who he is as well in the BFI. So, without further ado then, on with the show. Here's Dick Fiddy talking to Phil Morris, and then Phil Morris's wife immediately after that, and then right at the end, five minutes with Dick Fiddy. Uh, my name's Dick Fiddy, I'm from the BFI. I'm delighted to come here to this inaugural Starburst, Starburst Festival uh, with our special guest, Philip Morris. I somehow gathered this would be a male-heavy uh, <laughs> collection. It's nice to see. Very, very welcome, the female faces here. Um, I think perhaps it's best... If Phil, if I can give Phil a chance to explain what he actually does, because I think a lot of people have actually perhaps don't understand the nitty-gritty of what Phil's been up to. We, we know him as someone who a few years back uh, electrified the, uh, the collecting cult world with his finds. Um, but it's a much more complicated story than that. And I'll, Phil, if I could just ask you just to explain what happened when what started off as, let's say, uh, a, a hobby, turned into something else. What, when were you first alerted that this quest you were on might actually pay dividends? Right, let's start at the beginning. Let's take it all back where it, where it did begin. It began with, uh, I was looking for a DVD, you might have read this before, of uh, Not Only But Also, which was a famous Peter Cook and Dudley Moore comedy from the 1960s. And someone said, oh, it doesn't exist. I said, what do you mean it doesn't exist? You know, the BBC have got a copy of this. Oh, no, they wiped all the tapes and it did. You know, it's the same with your Doctor Who's. I said, doesn't exist. And I I got onto a forum somewhere. I got to know a guy called Paul Venezis, who was at the time a BBC producer. And we got talking. And I, at the time, was working in the offshore oil and gas industry, uh, which basically used to drag me all over the world. And I said, if you can give me some kind of paperwork... I'm normally stuck in the town for a couple of weeks or a week or ten days. Maybe I can go there and, and ask them quite blind to whatever situation was going on that they could still have something. You know, I didn't know anything about the situation. And he said, yeah, okay. So I remember going to, went to BBC Birmingham at the time 
where I think Paul was working on country file or something like that. And he supplied me with some paperwork to say, take that, that'll, you know, give you some accreditation from the BBC. We then made an arrangement, we came to the BFI, where I met Dick, and uh, Dick did the same thing, gave me some paperwork, if the, you go the, out anywhere. The BFI are the official archivists of ITV, not, yes. uh, not everyone knows that, so yeah. by, with those two letters it meant Phil was representing both BBC and ITV, and by, by default Channel 4, although we were probably less, there was less Channel 4 that yeah, was interest for, just because of the period it was set up. Yeah. So, we decided to pick on who bought the most Doctor Who or who got the most episodes. So if we look at the screen here, we can see, I don't know if you can see here, you've got Zambia, she's just down here somewhere, yeah, you've got, you've got Zambia about here, we decided to pick on Zambia, we thought, we'd read a report from uh, an arc, and I, I think it was Fiat that had been out there, they had these 10,000 boxes of film and I thought, wow, got to be the Holy Grail. They've got to have everything that we've ever sold and all that. Not understanding at the time the bicycle system where things were moved around and also understanding the destruction of things as things had gone through the 1970s. Things had been returned back to television. Probably England film studios where a lot of stuff went back to in the early 70s. So anyway, I went out there. Um, I was quite lucky. The head of the, uh, the local cultural community there I actually went to stay with her uh, and she got me an in with ZNBC, which is Zambia National Broadcasting, uh, and I was straight into the archive. I was there for weeks going through things hand by hand and I could not find one BBC programme on 16mm film. I found Cap uh, not Captain Scarlet, Joe 90 and all sorts of other things, Starsky and Hutch from the 70s. But what I never realised was these were pieces that had been left behind while other shows had moved on. Was, it was all part of this bicycling system, which is a bit like video rental you had in the 70s. Things were flying around all over the globe. Um, and that was my first taste. Saying that, it wasn't my first taste, because when I actually went out there, I was disappointed. That would be the word. I was really disappointed. I thought, you know, I'm, what about these other places? And I had a lot of air miles. And I thought, oh, what can I use these air miles for? <laughs> you know, I'm still here. I've got, I've got some time, so I, you know, I sort of... Hang on, we'll go to Uganda. Uganda's not far from Zambia, so I went to the local visa office, got a visa, and I just flew blindly to Uganda, went there. Uh, I managed to talk to a lot of people there, and it was explained to me they had basically nothing. Uh, they'd moved two or three times, and uh, things were just destroyed and thrown around, so there was really nothing there. Again, I was like, I've got more time, you know, how many more air miles have I got? So I managed to get another flight, to Ethiopia. Actually, no, 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 that's out of order. At that time, I went to Kenya, where I went to the Kenya Broadcasting. And uh, they were very nice people. I, I, I just shot a lot of footage over there, which you will get to see at some point when we put something together. It's just, I'm really a busy guy, and time is, is really of the essence. Um, Kenya had destroyed all its programming, probably around about 1986. Hell of a lot of BBC programs. Um, and the guy sat down to me and said, well, no one wanted this stuff. I said, well, the BBC actually do want it. He said, well, we call the BBC and they said, how dare you still have all of this stuff? You're supposed to destroy it. And they destroyed it. I remember going through one um, storeroom there 
and there was a couple of cans which uh, Oh Brother, which was a Derek Nimmo comedy series from the 1960s, but the content didn't match, so they weren't actually there. So that ruled Kenya out. We, we tried there, you know, we've been there, and that was the end of, of basically where it began. But while I was there, I was speaking to the guy at uh, ZNBC, and he, he said, "Well, we need uh, broadcast machines." Oh, and I, and I kind of started looking at what they needed. The mistakes that we made, and I'll get on a bit later on to the mistakes we're still making in archives. Don't think things have got better in the UK. What you don't see at the moment is, is quite tragic. Um, I I realised, I thought, there's a lesson here. And I feel like I need to play a part in it. it was, we've destroyed culturally a lot of stuff in the UK. And they're at that tipping point over there in these other countries, like Africa, all over all over the globe if you like and they're all making this and I thought there's something we can do here didn't know what it was I just I just had a, had a feeling for something and I could play a part in something so I had a couple of machines exported from the UK over to Zambia I think it took two or three days the guy said can you get these machines yes I can what sort of machines were they? they were um, I think they were Umatics. One was a Umatic and one was, uh, I can't remember what the other one was now. They're quite bulky. Oh, they were huge machines. As I say, they had to be, uh, they had to be crated up to send them out. Uh, basically, they were exported over to Zambia a couple of days. The head of the station said, these machines are here? I said, yes, that's what I said. He goes, no, but they're really here. Those people are used to people saying things and not delivering on them. So that's the first port of call that I realise. If you're going to do something, say you're going to do it and deliver it. That way these people will get confidence in you and then you'll get cooperation. It has to work like that. So basically that's where, that's where TIA was born. I mean, I was still working in the offshore oil and gas industry. I was still working in Nigeria at the time. And round about 2006, I had a, a little event that changed my life. I'd finished work at midnight, I went to my bed, and a big alarm started sounding on. I thought, oh, it's a drill. We have lots of drills in the offshore oil industry. So it wasn't a drill. As I opened my, my room door, there was a seven foot black guy there with a big loaded bullet around in an AK 47. I thought, this is uh, it's getting a bit real, this. So, cut a long story short, we were dragged out, and there were bullets being. It was like something, to be honest with you, I've got to say this. I normally take a box set out with me, and I did back then. I took the James Bond collection, and I'd fallen asleep just at the end of the spy. <laughs> <laughs> the spy who loved me. Which anyone, anyone can tell you, it's got the two submarines in the underground, in the, in, inside the ship, and there are bullets going off everywhere. And I thought it was the television, but it wasn't. <laughs> and it kind of, it was just like that was going on, and the real thing went on. Anyway, it was a life-changing situation for me, basically because I'd never been in a situation like that. I had people with guns, I didn't have a gun. One guy knelt me down, he had a gun to the back of my head, he said, tonight's your last night, tonight you're gonna die. And I was like, whoa, I can't really deal with this. What's, you know, so normally you can change what you think. Anyway, cut a long story short again, we were taken up the Niger Delta, we were there for about a week while a ransom was paid, and then we were all flown home. And I was, I couldn't really process this. This was all, what's going on here? So I ended up with, I would say a mild form of post-traumatic stress. I just withdrew. I just withdrew. I, I was, I, I, I was someone that thought at the time, there's something I'm not dealing with here. And I was 
trying to work it out. Eventually I did work it out. And I decided I don't want to do this anymore. And the missing episodes things and the recovering of programmes, I thought, that's what I'd like to do. And strange as it sounds, I had to go for counselling to talk about what had happened. But we didn't really talk about that, we talked about missing episodes. <laughs> <laughs> My counsellor, it was more about Doctor Who than, <laughs> than you could ever believe. And that's what he did, and he goes, you know what, Phil, you've got to do this. And this was a guy who was at the head of the whole, a big position in the NHS, and he was going, you've really got to ask me, I'm going to do this, I'm planning my first trip. I'm doing this. But anyway, so I finished in the offshore oil industry. I got a little bit of a payoff and I decided, right, that money's going to go in here. This is something I believe in. I don't know where it's going to go, but it's something I want to do. And, and it what, was therapy. It was therapy in a way. The first, one of the first pieces of therapy was, it was Nigeria. Part of me, I'm going back there because I'm going to face this straight down. And, uh, and I did, you know, we made a lot of good contacts, it took a little bit of time, we made a lot of good contacts there, and part of the project, we, we, I met a guy there called Bello Suley, a good friend of mine, he must be about that big, very strange for an African guy, because he's got bright blue eyes, black, bright blue eyes, really nice guy, and I did the same thing, he said, look, we've got a problem, we've got a lot of material on pneumatic, um, and we you know we need to be able to play it. I said, I'll get a container, I'll get, you know, 12 machines sent out for you. Okay, uh, back home, organised all the stuff, got everything packed up into a container, got it out there, I flew back out again. Uh, and he said, the stuff's here. I said, I know. <laughs> he said, well, but it's here. I said, I know. He said, you've done what you said. I said, well, that's what I said. He said, right, okay, what do you want to do? I said, I'd like to go round every single one of your relay stations. And just to see what's still out there. So he said, no problem. So there's a car, there's two guys, bodyguard, all the rest of it. And he said, don't travel at night, just stay. They'll put you up, they'll take you to a hotel. So we did that. And I travelled from every single station. I mean, it's quite, certain parts of Nigeria are quite, uh, shall we say, tasty in the, you know, it's not really safe. Especially, where, I mean, Joss, where we were at first, is okay. But as you go further out, you know, it, it can get a little bit um, hairy. hairy, but I kind of live like that, so it's not really a problem for me. And it's, But it was really interesting to go around the stations. Now, what had happened in Nigeria was interesting. And that in, Bello really explained this to me, he said, we didn't have enough programming to keep the whole network on the air. So in the telecine days, what we used to do is things used to move from station to station to station. So we'd have something to broadcast. I said, that's interesting. So uh, he said, oh, I can't tell you where anything is. He said, once the system, the telecine system stopped, the machines broke down, things stopped. It was a bit like musical chairs. So right, okay, so we'll, we'll visit every station and we'll see what we can find. And it was interesting. Um, you know, we'd go to the, I think, the, what was the first place we went to? We left Joss and we went to, uh, it wasn't Kaduna. Kaduna's the oldest station, it was, uh, can't remember, it's Pat, Pat, I've forgotten that. Anyway, the station we visited had a lot of stuff. They bought the bulk of your Doctor Who's, if it's on Doctor Who. They bought a, a lot of the William Hartnell stuff, um, and they bought the Trout stuff. Apart from, I think, the Wheel in Space, which went to uh, NBC, which is basically Lagos, which is down here. Um, but the station which had bought those programmes, they weren't there. And I asked the question, I said, well, well, 
where are all the films? This, they were all kept in this room. But over the years, because of the rise and the fall in the temperature, film tends to disintegrate and it tends to give off a really strong pungent smell, which is, we know it's vinegar syndrome. Uh, so we got rid of them. What do you mean you got rid of them? I said, well, we just had a guy come in with the truck and take them away. They were gone, so okay. Um, I said, well, can I have a look around? Yeah, of course you can. I went into the prop store and I was just climbing on shelves and looking down the back of things and there was a carpet there and I kicked this carpet open and there were two editions of the sky and I said, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> got somewhere here and then there was another film there which I picked up which was um, Troubleshooters in the 60s and missing the Troubleshooters. So picked those up, put them to one side, pick them up later and then we left and as I say, every station we visited, some stations had nothing some stations had other things but the operation this is how tier works on, on this this level we cleared every station in that entire country it took me about five weeks and then got everything back to a central location and then everything then sent back to the uk um, when i found the doctor who's they were located in as i've already mentioned before a place called joss uh, complete episode one, one to six of the enemy of the world, which is the Trouton story, and episodes one to six of the Web of Fear. Um, the problem we had was the station manager there, as we were bringing the last couple of films out, says, oh no, they've got to stay here. And he took them, and he took them to his office. And when we went back to collect some other things, he said he'd put them back on the shelf, but he hadn't. And I know from being there, I was there probably about 14 months ago when I spoke to him I said that we haven't got that film back you know he goes I don't know anything about missing episodes so instantly it, it was obvious what had gone on but we're on top of that that was not going to stay missing for too long so we are working on that but that's how it kind of begun and then basically I can't mention specific states after that personally for the simple reason that now when we work with the station we're tied to a confidentiality agreement and I'll tell you the reason for that they give us some of their materials now because I bought a big place in the UK to base tier at tier base I call it which basically houses a lot of transfer machines which were picked up worldwide through the UK stuff like that so basically when we go to a country and they don't have let's say a two inch quad machine transfer local materials we can containerize that machine that material send it to the uk send it to our facility transfer it to a modern format and then send it back again however to do that these are nationally important materials so it's got to be done confidentially it has to come in we have to sign a confidentiality agreement between us and an exclusivity agreement between the station for the transfer of the materials we also have to video the destruction of the material once it's been transferred to prove to the broadcaster and that it's actually been destroyed as well and issue a certificate of destruction once they've got the new copy. So that's the reasoning behind that. We have to keep that basically quiet. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just a question, is that due to the cop the sort of um, retrospective copyright that the stations are worried that they'll get sued because they've kept held onto the, onto the material? Their the they, worry would be that a copy gets out it's their copyright. For us, we have to protect the copyright of the copyright holder. So if yeah. we get a missing program back, we have to protect the copyright of that. We don't copy it. it. You know, it's checked, put to one side, and then it goes back, obviously, to the broadcaster at some point. 
A lot of the material Phil's talking about here is material that would have it's been generated material. locally. Yeah. Oh, I see. And, yeah, okay. um, so we're compared with yeah. stuff that yeah. was sent yeah. out people yeah. with the bicycle system. Because the, 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 well, the bicycle system basically is um, such a haphazard system. People, I've done, a, I've done an awful lot of research on formerly BBC Enterprises, and it was literally a cottage industry, and a very loose one at that. You know, if things were moving, let's say, take six episodes of Doctor Who, this station's finished it, they're going to send them to Cyprus, we'll throw it in with that batch because it's a bit nearer to the destination they want to get it to, and it's also cheaper. So it throws something around and you don't know where, roughly where things are going to land. When Paul Venezes visited Cyprus back in the early 80s, they had a Doctor Who story they'd never bought. Again, it was part of the, he was saying to me, well, they never bought this. I said, yeah, but it's part of the same system where things have moved, but it's been on a ship and they don't look at it like a fan of it's Doctor Who. They just go, well, these have got to move, put those in the crate also and ship them across as well. A very haphazard system. Enterprises used to, uh, used to people think, kind of think, well, they've got to do one or three things. Well, actually, they didn't. As you, as you approach sort of the mid-1970s and colour television is, is, is to the fore, they'd lost interest completely in black and white material. They got interested. People changed, personnel were changing all the time. They still do at the BBC. Uh, and you'd lose track of things. You really would lose track of things. You know, it's... it's uh, it, 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 for me, uh, the mo- one of the most difficult things to do is obviously T is a commercial enterprise. I created the commercial enterprise so it would do the right thing with getting up the missing material back. That's its real real backbone. But the main the other thing is here to export the idea that we preserve their material, which is something we take very, very seriously. You know, it's you know it's people are quite astounded, you know, they're going, Oh well, yeah, but hang on, I'm gonna take care of that first. We always make sure we, we do what we say. You know, we're not gonna say we'll do that, but we really have to know. And we leave a market. I always feel in this job that you, you can do 20 good jobs for people, do one bad job, and that's what you'll be known by. And we're very, very careful not to do that. You know, it's, it's got to be done right. But it's um, one of the things you were saying, because of the haphazard nature of what happened with the bicycle system yeah. and the haphazard nature of the way international used to work then, yeah. it means that you can't really follow their paper trail no. because everyone starts out thinking well I've got a paper trail from the BBC I know where this stuff was sold I'll just follow that trail but you found that you couldn't do that could you? The, the, the biggest one the help I've found to be honest has been one of Dick asked me a question before and he said what ta- when did you know this is what you wanted to do and I, I told you the answer before we were in the green room and it was it was actually in Nigeria I was in Kaduna, which is the oldest station in Nigeria, and they had, a, they had a book, it must have been about that thick, a huge folder, and I started turning the pages, and there it was, Step to and Son, Dad's Army, Doctor Who, it was, all, it was all there, and it said where it came in, the date it went out, and everything, and I was reading this book, <laughs> and the guy that was working with me, he turned around and he said, Mr. Morris, do you, do you mind if I go home? I said, no, is there a problem? He said, it's three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, oh, I'm sorry. And, but, but it was one of those moments where you go, hang on, it's three in the morning. I am a bit tired, but I'm so, I'm so into this that this is what I want to do. This is, you know, you're at that, that balance between this has made me really happy. I've, I've got an appetite for doing it. 
and that was the moment. That was uh, Dick asked me. He said, "What was that?" That was the moment. I always go back to that moment. It was great, a great moment. Uh, you know, it was a great place to visit. That it was, you know, it was. To be honest with you, I went in one of the archives at uh, Kaduna. It was something like that. Out of Indiana Jones, you know, they, they had like a small film vault and they had this old wooden door. What's in that no one goes in there? Does <laughs> <laughs> anybody go in there? You know, we get the key, it's a big, big skeleton key, cracks it open. And this place was full of cobwebs and all the rest of it. And I remember sorting some film cans out like that and there was with snakes on the floor. Literally, someone goes, watch out for the snakes. And I, I thought he said something else and I thought, oh, goodness me, like that. <laughs> I literally broken windows on the place, you know, but it was, it was things like that are fascinating. You can't really get to identify them. I mean, there were films there. There was that much dirt on the reel because it was out of the can. You couldn't identify stuff. But when it came back to the UK, then we were able to clean the leader. And obviously identify what the programmes were. You know, a lot of things, a lot of our old archaic films and stuff like that. But that's another problem. Um, I won't tell you the country because obviously I can't. But yeah. it was a desert. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I were on a station and we were doing a job there. And I said, according to my information, you bought this, this, and this. He said we did. He said we it was, it, we threw it out in the early 1980s. Okay, like that. Where do you throw stuff here? <laughs> where, where, where does stuff get there? It goes up in the desert. Guy working with me called Zhao Hernandez, an Indian guy who's worked there for many years. And we're talking about night, and I said, What happens to the road? She goes, Come and watch, and we're watching it in the evening, and the stuff's getting trucked out to the desert. So he brings this guy to me, he goes, This guy's done it for like 35 years. I said, Do you take the stuff from the TV? Oh, yes, boss, I take the stuff from the TV station. I'm there. You bet it in the desert. I said, you think you could tell me where you took this stuff? And I know it's a lot. He goes, Oh, yeah, that's section 21. I said, oh, right, so there's important stuff they threw away. Okay, yeah, but they uh, will cost. I said, okay, I'll pay you so many dollars. I said, can you get a JCB? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we organised it. <laughs> the next evening, after a, with a couple of big boxes of water on the back of this JCB and me sitting on the back with me, scarf around my head, we headed off into the desert. And we're sitting there at three o'clock in the morning digging this, digging this thing out. And we actually found a lot of, I mean, I don't know what it is yet, because as I say, it's got to come back and cat, be uh, catalogued. But that's the extent that we go to. Was that film or video that you found? It's film and video tape. Uh, film and video tape. What it is, uh, you know, if it's the exact stuff, we don't know until it's, they can say one thing on them. But let's see when it comes back. As I say, you've got to go through these things meticulously. But that's... That gives you an idea, the extent I go to, you know, there's a story, this originated from me, you'll, you'll remember a story where someone said, uh, one of the Doctor Who Yeti stories was shown in the cinema, that originated from me, I was working, when I used to work offshore, it must have been 86 or something like that, I had an old fanzine, and one of the local guys in Nigeria said to me, he said, oh, I've seen that in the cinema. And we actually tra uh, traced it back to a cinema in, uh, I don't know if I can see it on the pen actually, it's, there's Angola there, Nigeria, it's a place called Wari, it's roughly about here, it's in, uh, just outside of Lagos, but we did chase it up, what it would, would have meant was, those films that were taken from Kaduna and thrown out, really weren't, because I asked Bello about this, I said, what are the chances of this? He goes, this is Nigeria. So <laughs> <laughs> he said, this is Nigeria. So basically it said to me, that anything they could sell or salvage in a local cinema, then they would do. So 
that's not really finished yet. I've got, I've, I've got, I've got somebody keeping an ear to the ground on that because I, th I think there's a little bit more to do there. Whether anything will come of it, let's see. But that's another thing as well that you've you've got people in those places. I've now, got you? What I look at is when you've been to a place. Are you sure you've got everything? If anything comes up, and I'll tell you a story now, it's quite a recent one. This was talking to Dick about it, about school. Always have people left on on the ground. If anything comes up, I want to know about it, and then we'll we'll move back in again. So one of my guys uh, emails me, Phil, uh, there's this school. Oh yeah, is your son going to? No, he said there's film at this school. I said that'll be United Nations stuff. So where is it? So I, I get to my map out and look at it. I thought, hang on. That's it, that was a relay station. So he email, email back again, go and go and find out. So he travels out to this school. This school is uh, the films were taken from the school probably about now it'll be about two months ago. Uh, they were taken to a local transmitter station because they were extending the school apparently. Um, it's really interesting this place, it really is. Um, as it stands at the moment, as I say, this is what I mean, little bits of information come back to me. As it stands at the moment, we're just waiting for the permission from the, um, the local broadcaster to go and visit this transmitter station. It has to all be done, you know, you've got to go through a certain, certain amount of things, but it's very, and those things hit me all the time. I get so many things like that to come into Tier Base and uh, as I say, wherever we've been or wherever we've gone, there are always new pieces of information coming back up again. Because you never know, someone might have you know, took something home or something like that, but if they've got this a point of contact, they'll always come back to you and then you know, there's, a, there's a chance of, uh, of a recovery. So, uh, but it's, it, it's been a fascinating, uh, and it still is, it, re it really does. I mean, I, God love him, it's our wedding anniversary today, but I'm never home. <laughs> 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 I'll have to make up for that one today. But uh, I do, t the one thing I'm really grateful for, my wife's really supportive, and I do talk about it a lot, is what I'm trying to do. Um, that's do something that's going to help a lot of these countries preserve their own stuff, and in doing that, return our stuff, and then we can put some of the pieces back together again, which is really important. Uh, and it's, it's it's not just Doctor Who, there's, we were talking about programs before, Dick. there's a whole spectrum of things. Oh, sorry. What's been the find that's given you the most pleasure? Oh, that's easy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, this is going to sound strange, a massive, the Doctor Who find, that was great, but the one that's probably given me the most pleasure is, for slightly different reasons, it was one of the Sky at Night editions. Now, my cousin, she had breast cancer, her name was Hilary. Great girl, really full of laughter, great. She had, uh, she had breast cancer, she went through a chemotherapy, and after about four weeks it came back again, and it was, it was terrible. Massive fan of the Sky at Night. So, uh, I'd found this edition, and you know, got in touch with the production team at the, the BBC, got this back to Patrick, who was absolutely over the moon. For Patrick, this edition of The Sky at Night was his school friend, Arthur C. Clarke, school friend. He'd not seen him five years ago. And all of a sudden, this he said, if there was one edition you could have kept in my show, it's that. And he was cock-a-hoo. So cock-a-hoo. He turned around, I was telling him about Hillary. Could you, get, could you sign a book for it? He goes, well, I can't sign things. I have to put a stamp on them. 
because uh, I've got arthritis in my hands. He said, but I want to do something else. He filmed a special Sky at Night for her. <laughs> put it on DVD, and she got it through the post. And for that one day, she was, you know what I mean? That's the one. For me, that's the one. I don't, I, well, I don't do this for me. I do it for the impact it has on other people. That's that's the reason to do it. And I like it, you know. I like the travel. I like I like working with other people. I like to make a difference, and that's that's what's important. It's not a, some people, you know, they just say, "Oh, give us that," and I'm not interested in that. If you're not going to play a part in explaining the lessons that we still haven't learnt in this country where archiving is concerned, then you shouldn't be involved. And and that's that's the point that I want to be involved at really. You know, in making a difference, and plus the possibility—I mean, the possibilities—that they're a bit like a roulette wheel in some ways, because you think that it's going to go that way, and all of a sudden, a piece of information goes in, you go wolf, and it goes back that way again, and you think, okay, let's try this, let's try this one out. But the biggest thing that I, that I have personally is I don't give up. Paul Benazi said this about me, and I—I I remember saying to him, I said, "Why me? Why me?" And he goes, "You don't give up." You don't give up, you, you go something one way and then all of a sudden the next day you go, you're coming at it from that way. Constantly trying to come to an answer and find out you know, either where some material is, what the possibilities are that the material's in private hands, whatever. You don't give up on it. I said, that's true. I, I don't think, I think if you're passionate about something, why should you, you know, why give up on it? Also there's, because of the way the system works, very often you have to operate at their pace, don't you? Or have to have your own pace. We spoke about that before, Dick. I mean, it's, there are countries now that I've got, which are kind of on hold, I've got elections. While the elections are going on, things stop. Um, until they're ready to, ready to engage on something, it's, it, it stops. There are one or two countries I am uh, so urgent to go into. However, I do have to wait at their pace, you know, because I want it to be you know, a, a good alliance when, it, when it's that time to, you know, to go out there. Um, and one of the problems is that, because obviously Phil works hard at building up these relationships with people, and then because of the impatience of others, they'll start phoning up the stations, pretending to be part yeah. of Phil's organisation, or pretending to be from the BBC. Or the BFI, you do get, you do get, I, un, I, I perfectly understand fans' frustration in missing Doctor Who episodes. I perfectly understand that. I'm, I'm a Doctor Who fan. I'd, you know, the material, you know, a lot of it, you know, you really want to see it. The key pieces of information from that programme that, you know, fill all the gaps in. However, one thing that always bemused me with that is, is probably film collectors, there'd be a, a certain core of Doctor Who fans who would say, the hoarders. I work with a lot of film collectors, uh, a lot of fantastic people, and if we didn't have those, this stuff would have gone to landfill. So they're not. These people we need to approach, these people we need to find a common interest, common ground, and you'll get a lot more back. You really will. I've, I get so many contacts with film collectors in the UK and overseas saying, I've got this, I've got that, you know, and we keep it really. I always say to people, whatever you say to me or, or if you're dealing with tea, it's, it's usually me as the, as the front man. Um, it's confidential. I'm not going to turn around and go, oh, you've got this, I'll never do that. It's, it's your choice to do what, what you want with the material. However, 
Thank you for culturally preserving it. Please share it. You know, but I'll leave the time scale to you, and I'm not going to pressure you or anything like that. You know, if you want help with the transfer of a program, just call me. I'm always I'm there 24 hours. I'm always there to help. You know, so it's in, it, as I say, I'm about bridge building. That's what that's what the important thing to do with this. Really. And the other thing, because of that, because of the nature of dealing with private collectors and dealing with old collections, one of the sort of uh, fringe. Uh, in industries you got into is the machines themselves, isn't it? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm terrible for this. It's basically I've gone into the. I thought to myself, I want a copy of every machine ever made, be it, you know, the professional stuff or the domestic stuff. Every video recorder, which I've, we've now got, the Pito Scott was the last one that came. I've only got one of those so far, but I'm looking for a, a, to get another one. But I've got, I'll have let's say a Philips 1500. I have 30 of those machines. All checked out, stacked up, ready, so everything can be transferred. Also working on technology for a 405 line video recorder, so we can get a direct line transfer out, not shot off a screen, straight onto a modern media. Basically, so we can get the optimum from the tape, so it, it, it can be near enough broadcast quality, so you know, it can be shown again on television, someone can see it. So. I've got Tian involved in, in so many, so many different things. And it's not just television as well. You have to remember, when I travel around, around the world, uh, they always say, you know, the UK very industrious. And for such a small nation, you know, it's colonised nine out of ten countries around the world. It's also taken its culture out there, its film culture, its television culture and its radio culture. So there are possibilities. We, I look at sound, I look at television, I also look at film. A lot of cinemas now around the world are closing down, going digital, so there are a lot of film prints floating around which are just getting jumped, and again, T is coming in on that, and we'll get stuff back. Um, as I say, I feel all, all forms of those, those kind of media are they're culturally important, and we are, in a way, at a tipping point with technology now that, you know, we need to be proactive in getting stuff back, we really do. You know, so, it's really important. And the other thing we were talking about was the fact that Phil's worried that in certain cases this is still going on, that we're not looking after the archives properly. There's not enough money in the hands of some of the people that own the archives. Or there is enough money, but it's not actually put into the area of the archive. It's put into new production and, and stuff they can make money out of. And I think, I th I think you, you, you're quite right. I think there has to be a mix of the commercial... And what I, what I kind of mean like that, archives are just buildings. Why, why doesn't an archive also have a theatre there where people can go to visit and then they can show certain programmes on a certain day and, you know, again, it, it generates income. Look at programming. How can we remaster it? How can we get it out there? How can we, you know, it, it generates income. Income that portions of can go back into the investments of an archive. It should be a living thing. A television programme, like I spoke to Dick about before, it's a bit like a listed building. Some programme, Doctor Who's a listed building. You know, it really is. But if you walk past it every day and you saw bits of it were falling down, the council had soon put a compulsory purchase order there and said, listen, if you don't sort this out, we're going to take this off your hands. And I feel archives should be exactly the same. If broadcasters have bought an archive, cherry-picked a few things, and they're letting the rest of it just go to rack and ruin, that should be stopped. It's, it's, our, it's not my culture, it's our cultural heritage. And once it's gone... It's that, that's the end of it, you know, so there's a bigger 
debate to be had on all of this. There really is. You'll hear brokers go, well, there's no money. Well, that's not an answer for just leaving it. If you can't do anything with it or don't have the money, then either sell it or move it to someone else who probably does have the wherewith for doing something with you know these formats. You know, it's a big debate we need to have. It's still, you know, we've had the big purges from the BBC in the 70s, but it's still going on. It's still, I mean, you, we were talking before, you know, it's, uh, I was privileged to go to Pinewood Studios last year and I saw some of the archives and they were in the Poland state. And these, the, the stuff there is national heritage. It's in an appalling state. You know, and I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm trying to beat the drum around the world. Don't do this. But we're still not at the front of the queue back here. We really need to do better. Now, with, with the way that your business works now, and that you're doing so much work digitising their archives and preserving their heritage. Actually, sometimes it's not sort of digitising. They've normally got the serve. They'll actually input the material back in. We'll just transfer it to a, a format where they'll... It could be on a digital platform, but sometimes it could be just a tape format. Um, it just depends. As I say, it goes from job to job, whatever they, whatever they specify they want to, uh, to do. But with that being such an important part of your business, obviously when you've sent material home, you haven't yet got to the point when you've gone through it. No, not, not have, have you any idea when you'll get to that point? We are, we are, it, we are getting to that point now. But you've got to understand when stuff comes back, it, it'll get a lot. There'll be a lot of photo program. Then it, things are going to be segregated. I think things have got to be looked at and see what the condition they're in. There's no point in saying, "Oh, we found this. If the film shrunk and it's damaged, or you know, it's you, you, the film's going on the rewind." Or it's like the Morecambe Wise. The Morecambe Wise. That was that was a classic example. The Morecambe Wise. Yeah, that was uh, it was in the Nepal state, wasn't it? It was liquid. Toxic, shall we say. <laughs> Toxic. They had to take it out of the archive and bury it. Now showing its cellophane. It was poisonous, yeah. It was really terrible. Yeah, it wasn't a bad state. I'm quite confident we'll find another copy of that episode, to be honest. I'm quite confident. Yeah. Um, so you're doing that at this moment. At this moment, you're doing both. You're helping them, making sure that you're you're returning the favours as it were, making sure they get the machinery they want, but also... I, I, th I, think, I think, you know, that, that's really, really important. If people say, I've been in with a lot of hard-headed director generals and TV stations, and believe me, they'll say 15 minutes like that, you'll go in, and I've come out and I've converted them. I've basically put it to them and said, it's your, this is your chance to put your name to this, and it was your name that made the change, because if you don't, this will all be gone in such a state uh, look there's my mobile phone there are pictures I've taken and I didn't know this I didn't know that you know what I mean because in a way you're making them take ownership which is what I think is an important thing you know you're the man in charge this comes back to you and I said in 20 years they say oh this guy was in charge and, he, you know, and all of a sudden they're like oh let's get something done so it's important about them you can walk through an archive and see cans of film they don't say anything to you it's when you put them on the machine you play them and there's a there's a pictures of the past. You're picking out all. I find it fascinating. You know what I mean? You go, oh look at that! I never knew that was like that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, and you've got to basically enthuse these people. That's part of what my job is to make sure that they they buy into their own culture just as much as we do with with our missing program, Doctor Who, or not only but also or, or anything else. And just to um, 
just to underline it, it's not just Africa you're talking about, is it? Africa was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at no, not at all. I mean, you're talking the globe. Talking the globe. You know, you're talking. You're talking everywhere. You know, absolutely everywhere. I mean, there's there's nowhere I I wouldn't go, um, given the right situation to head into. Um, I look at that map. I'm not going to point anything out. Look at that map and think you couldn't quite a bit. Of that really, <laughs> you know, you couldn't quite a bit. Some places I can see, you know, are still still ongoing, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's some pla- There are some places that that really interesting. But there are wars going on there at the moment, and they, you know what I mean. They're quite unstable. So you you've got to kind of get a contract over there, wait your time, and then when the window comes round, then in. Make sure everything's pretty secure between the hotel, the station, you know, you're travelling in between. Do what you've got to do, then get one of your guys in and get everything out and head out as well. So it's, well, it can be a bit tricky sometimes. I do hope you're still keeping the air miles. I, I do, I do. <laughs> Thing is, I keep, I, I keep using different carriers now, so I've got, I've, I've, I dare show you me wallet, how, <laughs> how many different cards I've got for, for all sorts of airlines. But, um, yeah. Cool. Right, I'm going to put it out to questions from the audience. Anyone's got any questions? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, yeah. Have you ever found any evidence of lost TV in other countries where they weren't actually supposed to go to? Well, a, cl- a classic example is, let's say, to- take Doctor Who with Cyprus. That wasn't me, that was Paul Venezes. They'd actually they had stories there that they didn't purchase. The reasoning behind that was, I think, it was moved us a lot, and that was with it, and then... We'll send that back to somewhere else. Things moved around really haphazardly, really haphazardly. It's a money-saving exercise. If they think it will right, eventually it get returned yeah. to the UK, they'll just lump yeah. no, spare stuff That's all it is. It. It's a money-making. You've got to forget, they don't look at it like Doctor Who or not only but also or, you know, maybe May Grace. They don't look at that. They just think, oh, those films are due for Send them all together and it's generalised. That kind of thing. Although you... Um Although we said the paper trail wasn't that much useful for the BBC, you made your own paper trail, didn't you, from transit notes? Peter Crockett says to me that my office is like Tobias Vaughan's office from the invasion. <laughs> because I have this big map. It's, it, to be honest with you, it's almost as big as this, and it's full of pins and pieces of cotton that go like that and like that and like that and like that, and they're everywhere. And it's, I always add a new piece to it because it, it shows me where I've been also. Uh, sometimes I'm lucky enough to get the transit books from the stations because I don't need them anymore and I keep those and they show me the movement of programmes and, and it's you know you'll see you'll see you'll see programmes even series being broken up and going to three or four different areas someone's bought six episodes of this series and someone's bought another four as a, as a kind of an audition and you you know, you're trying to track, and, and the, the biggest thing in it all, you're not guaranteed to know if it was at the station you're going to head out to, because you might go there and there might be nothing there. So it's just a bit of detective work, really, you know, and you've just got to stick to it. Once you've ruled something out, then it takes it another way. So, uh, go ahead. Yes. And just, um, obviously, in 2013, we're all very happy to have web and. Um, I'm just sorry you didn't get episode three. I really am. I missed, that was taken away from me. That it should have been two complete. Well, you did. You did give a slight hint earlier that you were still on uh, on the track, but um, I am, yes. Uh, 
first of all, on behalf of thousands and thousands of people, thanks very much. To My you. pleasure. The, the um, nicest comments I always get, everyone says, I'll buy you a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually owed quite a few pints. I don't drink that much anymore. I'm owed quite a few pints. Well, I, guess, I guess you could always claim it in milk. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's more of a personal question. How do you feel? I mean, how did you feel in 2013 when thousands of people that you've never met, you know, people like me and some of the people in this room, were absolutely delighted, couldn't couldn't believe it. It was, it was a highlight. Do you know what the highlights were, were a, a few things for me. One of the nicest ones, I've talked to Edward Russell before, and it was a little there was a six year old child at Excel in two thousand and thirteen. And he's with his dad. And I was standing in the corridor, someone asked me, asked me for something, I was just talking. And this little boy said, Daddy, that's Doctor Who's Indiana Jones. <laughs> and he goes, Do you want a photograph? Him? No, he, no, he'd be too shy. And I made a I made a beeline for him. I thought, how fantastic. Because for me, that's another generation who wants to see this 40, 50 year old programme. And he's coming into it, and that's what we're all about. Yeah. You know, a new ah, new audience, there you go. I thought, fantastic. You know, but uh, it was great, you know what I mean? I, I'm not I'm 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 quite a level headed guy, as you can probably guess. And I was I know, wait a second, there was another guy, there was another guy, there was a guy who emailed me and he'd been, so, he'd been suffering from uh, mental health problems and he said, this is true, he said, I felt like committing suicide, he said, and I've always loved Doctor Who and I saw this and I bought the DVD in the shop and he said, it's made my day and things, little things, that, that sounds like a little thing but to me, I've been through a little bit of that, I thought, that's great. For me, for me personally, the, I remember buying two of the Cybermen, I think, in 92 when that came out. It was a big thing going to the shop. God, this, you know, it said missing, exhumed, or whatever. And it was like that wild, it was like buying that old drug. And I kind of I've got that, you. And I, I got that. And I thought, wouldn't that be nice to make that happen for other people? Huh? We succeeded in doing that, you know, back, back then. And, and, and that's nice. It's a nice thing, you know. It's nice, to, it's nice for people to be able to watch something they never thought they were going to see again. And I, I absolutely love that. That's fantastic, especially when it then it becomes a shared experience. Well, my last round about was only eight. Um, her favourite story now is Enemy of the World. Right. Now I, I'll tell you a story about Enemy of the World. Um, when we were talking worldwide, now when you're talking to worldwide, I was, you know, I expected to go there and there was some guy or so, a senior woman, and this little girl came out. She was about nineteen. She goes. Oh, Doctor, have you got me Daleks outside? Oh, no, no. We're going to run with these. Enemy of the world. What's in it? Like that. And just didn't understand. I said, look, I'll be honest with you. At the time, in the 60s, this was written by a really good writer called David Whittick, who was fantastic. I said, this will go down a bomb because no one expects this one. This will be the quiet burner. No one will expect this one to go. And they, they had, I'll be honest, she had no faith in it. But I knew, I, I'd, I'd seen a preview of it, and I thought, this is, this, the story's a really ambitious story. I mean, the, obviously, you look at it as it's from its time. You know, it's, it's not a new piece, it's, it's from the 60s. But what they were trying to do on that very meagre budget that Doctor Who always operated on was, was quite a fantastic feat, I think. You know, and it was, it was just so different for, for, for the rest of that monster season from the 60s. So, it was, you know, I thought it was great. I really did. I'm, I'm really happy that, to be honest with you, that fans really have reappraised it and now they think, do you know what, this is, this is actually okay, it's not a weak story. It's a bit out of place in a monster season, but it stands on its own. 
you know, so I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah, so we always hear all these companies, which like I said to her, which is the same way to the children now. Then we're going back to watch that. Salamander! Fast-paced action. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. It's, it was also one of those things that pointed out just how different it is seeing it rather than just hearing it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a completely different experience having heard that audio to suddenly see it again. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's really nice to, when you've, when you've, something before when you've had episode one of the Web of Fear and then that was it, to all of a sudden you've got 90% of it back and also then Enemy is, com is complete, you know, that, that, that's been filled in instead of just, it just having episode three. Well, which I, was, I remember it being in the Boxing Magazine, it was low down, it was the first ever poll, was it bottom, that was the 200 mark, because this has been found, it's like, wow, this is really good and everyone's... It's nice. It's nice to know when people, as you know, fans watch things and watch things and watch things and reappraise. And it's nice to know that you know some of David Whittaker's work, uh, which be nice if we if we can get some more of that back. It's 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 been reappraised because he was a really really good writer, fantastic writer for the program. I think. Do you actually find um, the, excuse me, the return of Enemy and Weber's hint at the search at all? No. Of I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, 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 you know how fandom works, there'll be someone who'll make something up and I'll try and make me answer for it. But it's, I, I operate in the world with tea with I don't engage with any of, any of that. The important thing to me is, and I've always said this, is it's not important about what I'm saying, it's important about what I'm doing. It's important about the outcome of what I'm doing, yeah. However successful that I can make that. It's not important about, you know, you can all sit there and make things up. And Doctor Who's full of things that are made up. But the second you press, where's the fact button? It just falls to pieces. And I don't want Tia to be part of that. I want Tia to be. If there, if there are any announcements to be made, I want all of you not to see it coming. And I want it up to it, all of you like a steam train and come right out of left field. I, I, Dick, Dick's the same as me. We come from the day we didn't have internet. We didn't have. <laughs> If you, watch, if you watch, we do. No? <laughs> <laughs> you want the payphone at the end of the road. <laughs> anyway, I, we come from back from the day was you watched an episode one week, and if you missed it, well, that was it. You know, and to kind of get a sense of that back again, because it, we're in 24-hour media now, I think it's not a bad thing to give things, to make sure something comes up and it goes right up, gets the impact and everyone's talking about it. It's pretty good thing. It's good for archiving on the whole. It's good for the BFI. It's good for TIA. It's good for any other organisation because it highlights the issue that which is the core of what we're all really interested in. The recovery is great, and it gets everything back to you guys. But it's the core of uh, of the problem that we're all obviously archiving itself, which has got to change. It really has. I believe there's a lot of things well, I'll tell you now, I've got every, I've got every episode of Rent a Ghost on Umatic. You got some that? Probably have, yeah. Yeah. I think I've got every episode of that. Sitting there somewhere, I think. Um, sorry, thank you. I was going to ask you if you'd seen any evidence of anything such as Public Eye or Callan or any Z cars, Dixon Dock Green. Uh, I thought in Nigeria got Callan, however, because of the purge that they'd had, only one episode came back and it was already an existing one from Callan. However, the problem with ITV is I've not seen any 
paperwork at all. I'm, I am talking to a guy at ITV at the moment, and he's looking at things for me. But because of the reorganisation of ITV itself, because everything's based in Leeds now, um, it's proving quite difficult. However, he said whatever he can he can help with, he will do, because they're interested in getting some stuff back. Because ITV are getting more interested in archives. Obviously, they're purchasing other bits and pieces of, uh, of uh, other franchises. So, uh, yeah, we don't think that... What I would say is this, the door's not closed on anything. And if it's out there and we're in a position, we will get it back. That's it. Mark my words, we will get it back. Definitely. So. Last question. I was going to ask the obvious question, but you've already answered it. When are we getting some more Doctor Who? <laughs> so instead... Let me know. Let okay. me answer that directly. You'll okay. get it when you least expect it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, no, one will, no one will... Anyone who's thinking that, oh, we know when it's going to be, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, really? <laughs> so i tell you what, instead, I'll ask you this. How does Joanne feel when you tell stories about walking into rooms full of snakes? <laughs> Not very really nice, she doesn't like space. <laughs> she's just glad that she's not there. Fair enough. We, uh, we were terrifically lucky to get Phil in between globe trotting. Please thank you. Yeah. We better vacate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hi, this is JR again, still at the Starburst Film Festival, and... Hello, I'm Simon. And we are now sitting down with... Well, we're now sitting down with Joanne Morris. And we're going to talk to Joanne Morris <laughs> about something that I think is far more interesting for the people listening to this podcast than anything her husband could ever possibly tell us about, which I can get away with saying because he's not sitting here. Joanne... Living with the guy who, well, I don't even know if living with the guy is the right term for it, is it? Because let's face it, most of the time you're not, are you? No, most of the time he's away. He's not normally here. He's, yeah, he's the guy who pecks up and packs his bags and leaves in the middle of the night sometimes, I guess. Sometimes, yes. He can just say, I've had a phone call, get me to the airport, I'm going. And you're happy to do that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> Or maybe it's not the wrong answer, I don't know. Look, going back to the start, you and Phil have been together for, well, about nine years now, is that right? About nine years, that's right, yeah. So the entire time you've known him, he's been doing this? More or less, yes, the start of it all. So your relationship sort of must have started on this footing already, where Phil is already going off a lot and sort of getting involved in all these things, and you're getting left behind a lot. How, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, is that not a weird way to start a relationship? Not really, no. I knew what I was getting into when I met him and just went along with it. Well, that's a fair point. You're not getting any surprises along the way. So what's it really like, then, if you know he's in a foreign country somewhere and you probably, I mean, there must be times when he's got no internet, you probably don't speak to him for several days at a time. You must be worried. Yes, extremely. But over the years, in a sense, I've had to learn to get used to it. 
But it is worrying because sometimes I can email him and not hear from him for days. And I keep emailing him saying, hello, are you there? Where are you? Hello. And then I get an email, but I'm fine, stop worrying. But you do worry, it's natural. Of course, of course. So, I don't know, thinking about this, feels off doing whatever. Is Does that mean that family life is kind of not family life in some ways or it's got to be different from what you'd think of as a normal person's family life I know you've said you kind of cope with it is this I suppose what I'm asking is not is this what you dreamed it would be but in some ways you said you've been doing it like this from the start but I mean is it something that you've had to settle for or is it actually in some ways something that you're perfectly at home with i never settle let's get that straight first of all <laughs> um no because we i think because we are so close and we are a team and of course i'm involved sometimes with tia and things that tia does that we are that close and the bond's that strong you know, as a whole family the whole family's involved so it to some people it might seem unusual but it's not to us it's not just what you do really yeah. i suppose simon you want to <clears throat> jump in with anything um no, no, you can... Okay, <laughs> fair enough. You're doing very well. Oh, I'm, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Tell me something about, then, what a normal, if there is any such thing, month in your life might be like. No, two months are the same. No, really? No, not at all. Not with Phil involved, no. Do you ever get to... Do you ever get to, like, settle, then? Or is your life a case of sort of constantly sort of thinking, oh, what is this and what's happening there and what if and all this kind I of thing. I think there is an element of what if and what's going on but it's so fascinating what he's doing and that's what draws me in and the whole family in as well and you know like I said we are a close bond we're all involved in it there's no secrets from us and uh, it is fascinating and Phil's passionate about it. Did you know much of anything about any of this kind of stuff before you met Phil? Nothing. I was the other side of the camera. <laughs> right, yes. So, yeah. Um, so, no, this side of it, nothing at all. Nothing at all about it. And has it been interesting learning? And have you learned a lot? Oh, yes, I have. And <laughs> <laughs> all the different machines, what they all play, what they can all do, you know, different formats and stuff, where before I haven't got a clue. So now I'm not an expert, but I don't know. But you don't find that really tedious? No, in fact, he's, it's daft to say, but I think he's got me drawn into it that I suddenly become fascinated with things and different programs. I think, oh, I remember things like that. And, you know, we like different things, different programs, but sometimes things turn up that I think, oh, wow. And actually the journey of it, most people are interested in how these things get made in the first place, if they're interested in anything at all from behind the scenes. But what you've actually got going on is, well, they've said this before, it's like an archaeologist's job, Mm. where what you're doing is... You're not going in and trying to discover how these things happened, but you're going in, and what Phil's doing is going in and trying to save these things Mm -hmm. from getting lost altogether. I don't think people realise, actually, even these days, that things getting lost altogether is still an issue. I think people find it hard to believe that things are missing and the amount of stuff that's missing. And I think once, now that I've got involved in it, I'm quite surprised at what's gone on in the past, really. And it's a shame. It's a shame. Do you find it a surprise that it still goes on? Yes. With technology today, yes, I do. You think everything. It's a crying shame, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But is, Phil, have you found your perfect woman, then, do you think? I think I might have, Jay. <laughs> I, 
I, don't, I think that's beyond question, really, isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously Phil's sitting here listening. I was, was going to ask, do you, do you feel like you, you join in with the same thrills that Phil's getting? So he gets on the phone and he, and he tells you, do you know what we found this time? And I think in, in any relationship, no matter what they do, you're always interested in what your other half's doing. Because otherwise, if you, you wouldn't care about them, would you? So it is fascinating. And I like seeing him with the excitement and the passion, the drive, just as I'm sure he does in what I'm interested in, things that I like. You know, So, yeah, I do. I do. Well, how much time does Phil get to spend following your interests, considering he's <laughs> barely ever here? <laughs> um, well, I suppose the joys of modern technology. We do get to talk, don't we? And speak to each other. And No, he is home. Um just not enough (laughs) (laughs) we're talking about um a couple of minutes ago we were talking about uh, you know it's like a an archaeology and one of the things that phil's talked about and i i don't think people really give this enough importance but one of the things that phil's talked about often enough as far as i can see is that actually it might have been the missing episodes of british tv that have sent him out there but from what I can gather of what's happened is that Phil gets out there and he sees the plight of the TV and that's the cultural heritage of all these countries who... And I don't think it's necessarily just that they've not had the wherewithal to look after it, but that they just haven't bothered. Mm. And then it gets to the point where somebody comes in from the outside and says, I'm going to have to bother on your behalf. He must get wrapped up in an enthusiasm for that. How much of that actually gets home and rubs off on you? I think quite a bit, really. I'm quite sucked in, drawn in with it all as well. Because it is fascinating. Other people's cultures and stuff are different. Just like we have history, they have history. Yeah, yeah. And no matter whose history it is, it's always something for us to all learn from, isn't it? And it's no different, really. No. So, um, you know, looking back on this history and the way it's kind of almost been thrown away, yeah. Phil's quest, as it were, which started out looking for an episode of Not Only But Also or whatever it was and turned to Doctor Who and all these other things and actually now I'm not going to bandy about phrases like he's some knight in shining armour but actually you're kind of proud of how he's turned out and how this whole thing's turned out and what he gets up to well let's put it this way it's not every woman that can say they've got their own Indiana Jones is it? well no that's true (laughs) I bet he looks fetching in a hat as well I wouldn't like to try and find out what about the rest of your family? How involved are the rest of your family? And I don't want you to really talk too much about your family if you don't want to, but the rest of your family must have kind of got drawn into what's it going does. on it's, as well. It's a natural process, isn't it? Everybody else gets drawn in, and, and everyone's really proud of, of what Phil does and what yeah. he's done for the people in other countries and for missing TV programmes. Well, especially in this country as well. You were at the XL in 2013, mm-hmm. which was, what, six weeks, five weeks after... Um, that announcement about the Doctor Who episodes. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Was that, um, in some ways, was that maybe a turning point where you could actually see the impact it was going to have on people? It was. I mean, I'm not a Doctor Who fan. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, obviously, when Phil discovered them, obviously the first person he told was me. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. Yeah, um, and that was And he bit. said, you know, people, Joe, people are going to want to see these. And I didn't realise until they were released just how much people wanted them back and how much they meant to people mm. as well because yeah. I mean the other thing about this is and it's not just Doctor Who we're Doctor mm-hmm. Who fans so 
Doctor Who's the thing we're thinking about at the top of our priority list. But a lot of these programmes, and you talked about not only but also, and you know, you've mentioned other things, The Sky at Night and Patrick mm-hmm. Moore, and the effect it had on, um, oh, I can't remember what relationship you said to it. Cousin, Hillary, cousin yeah. So all of these things, the things, I mean, here's a question. The programmes that you were growing up with when you were a kid, a lot of those are probably missing as well. So, so you can see how important just mm. television is to people in general. Yep. And so, you know, Phil's sort of, I guess in some ways, the middleman between the people mm. and their memories, but he's bringing the memories back. He's bringing memories back for people, but he's also like that little boy at the XL that, who thought Phil was, you know, the Indiana Jones of Doctor Who. It's that new generation as well, isn't it, that have never seen them before, and they get to enjoy them. Well, that's true, and I've often found with small children is they don't care how old something is. If they like it, they yeah. like it, and if it's mm. in black and white, they don't care bothered. two figs. No. I mean, your own daughter, for example, she's presumably not of an age to have uh, had any awareness of what these Doctor Whos were before they came back in 2013, but she was at the XL as well. I mean, she must have, you know, got a little bit of a a sense of how big and important yeah she did and um, she was she's very proud of what Phil does as well and obviously she's wary when he's away because she does worry about him but no she's, she's very proud and it was a big thing to her as well especially when friends at school and stuff were saying Phil Morris isn't that and she's going yeah it is <laughs> <laughs> How much do you worry when he's away? Because, I mean, he comes along to these things and he tells stories about opening up rooms and somebody pointing out he's got snakes crawling around his feet and stuff. I think I'm just glad that he tells me after he's been in and done it. If I knew what he was going into, I don't think I'd be very happy at all. But he tells me after and I think, well, at least you've done it now and you're you're safe and you're out of there. But if I knew, or if I was there, I'd be like, you're not doing that. No way. (laughs) He strikes me as a very sensible bloke, though. He wouldn't get himself into any trouble unnecessarily. I'd like to think not. Maybe he's he's not told me. He's sitting here with a wry look on his face. (laughs) He's waiting for me to ask him a question. It ain't going to (coughs) happen. How do you enjoy coming along to things like this? It's different. It's different. But I think because I am part of... In a, with being with Phil and part of Tear and part of it all it's nice to see other sides to Phil's work and Phil getting the chance to talk about it Do you ever come up with ideas yourself? You know, for things that I don't mean, but I mean <laughs> things that Phil's doing do you ever sort of sitting around the dinner table on those rare occasions when it happened do you ever think I don't know, just some random example have you ever thought of doing such and such I don't mean ringing a particular place or anything but sometimes the way he does things he must tell you about how the operation works yeah we discuss everything and we just sort of mull it over don't we and run everything together and he just well no he tells me what he's doing and he does it (laughs) (laughs) yeah he strikes me as that kind of a guy but he thinks things through he's thorough he's very very thorough and he would never do anything half sort of half cock sort of thing no, everything no. He's, he knows what he's going to do and if it doesn't work he's got a backup behind that and a backup behind that and he's, he's, he's very thorough in what you do aren't he well as long as the recordings come out people will hear that from today's panel and actually I've got to tell you I've talked to Paul Venezes as well and he said exactly the same thing he said mm. Phil is a man who gets an idea in his head something he wants to do he will just do, it. do the thing yeah and he'll see it through to the end and he won't stop until he's got to the end. 
And hopefully that includes in the marriage, although I don't want any <laughs> intimate details, but do you know what I mean? I, but what I mean is, I mean, it looks to me from the outside, and, you know, we've talked on a couple of occasions off the record about all these sorts of things. It's Even though you've got what most people would probably consider a weird relationship in terms of you know, most guys go out at nine in the morning and come back at five at night, and probably so does their wife. So they're both going out at the same time and coming in the same time. You guys don't have that. But what you do have from the outside, I, and Simon's nodding in agreement, it works, right? We're a team. We're a team. So when Phil retires from all this, You'll obviously there's going to be trouble. I'll <laughs> never retire, will you? But we are a team, and just because we're not necessarily 24 7 you know, next to each other in each other's pockets. It doesn't, we have a strong relationship and we both have the same interest as well. And I want Phil to succeed. Well, Phil is succeeding at this, you know. Well, you have a background in entertainment anyway, so you can't, so you've never had what most people would call a normal life. No. So this is just... Um, what is a normal a, life? What well, is yeah. a normal relationship? Well, exactly. It, it would be a lot harder if we didn't have technology that we have today. We can stay relatively in contact with each other you know and people say he's away for weeks at a time but think of people who are in the forces they're away for months, months 12 months yeah, yeah. you know and thank goodness for the internet and phones and skype and skype well. yeah because yeah, yeah. otherwise it, it would it would be hard you know it's hard when he goes he says he's going for 10 days and it can be months you know? really as bad as that yeah wow <laughs> Phil, you've got a lot to answer for you know that? he does <laughs> He's just <laughs> nodding away to himself. <clears throat> Give him what Paul said. Ask a couple of questions of you, Phil. Things I've really asked before as well. But when you go off and, like I've said about what Paul said, if something comes up, you're the kind of person who won't let that go until, you know, until it's sorted, or until you've sorted it as much as you possibly can. But staying on the topic of the relationship, do you ever feel guilty about being away? I do. I do feel guilty about sometimes being away, but you, you've got to find a balance there somewhere. I think to, uh, you've got to you, the, the things that you want to achieve. You want to achieve them. Nothing's going to stop you from hitting that goal, no matter what it takes, no matter how many times to go back somewhere or go somewhere new. And you've got to find a balance. So you're kind of saying to yourself, okay, well I'll do this now, but then I'll have a couple of weeks and we'll we'll go and do that and. You try and find it's very, very difficult to do, um, and you know there are obviously pressures on the on the inside of that. But you know you just try and find a balance as best you can. Well, you've got to balance up so many pressures. Mm, but yes. I suppose one thing about your relationship is, I guess, inter because I've often found in relationships that people will balance up the things they think are important, mm. and you know if a relationship's not going too well the people will think different things are important but actually when it comes to something like this one of the things you've got to say is okay I understand this thing is important now but I'm important enough to be forever so in some ways you've got to say okay I don't mind taking a back seat for a day here a week there a month there because I know that at mm. the end of the day once he sorted that out I'm the person he's coming back to. But even though even though Phil's away, he's not away. I'm still involved in everything right, yeah. that, that's going on. I know everything that's going on. So I'm not, not involved, am I? No, you know, no. He might be the other side of the world, but mm. it's as almost as if he's sat in the same room and having a conversation with me. 
And how much do you, away from Tia and the work that he's doing, how much of a sense of the place that he's in and the, the people he's dealing with do you get? Um, quite a bit, really, don't you? Because you're talking about lots of characters and then they get in touch, and if they can't get hold of you, they get in touch with me and say, Can you get hold of Phil? Because we can't. <laughs> and, you know, so yeah, so I am involved, and there's some great characters that I've got for working for Tia, you know, some nice people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's not just abroad either. In the UK, there must be, you must have quite a lot of mm-hmm. ongoing and off and on contacts with people here too getting involved in all the work so actually it's kind of it's not just that you've expanded into kind of the whole world in terms of the globe but also in terms of your domestic sort of life you've kind of expanded there too in a way I guess yeah Yeah, even he has got bigger and bigger Um, and again if they can't get hold of Phil and it's urgent they'll ring me (laughs) so do you make new would you say friends out of some of the people Phil's had to work with or is the or is that more of a, a kind of a separate thing, the job? And I think it's yeah. a separate thing. Some of them are friends, aren't they? But it is a separate thing as well. What about in terms of... Uh, I can't think of what I was trying to say. In terms of uh, the people he works with in the UK, do you find yourself going off and going to places and doing things that you'd never really have done before. Do you, does he, for instance, say, right, I'm, you know, somewhere south of the equator. Can you get your backside down to such and such a place and sort something out for me? I mean, does a lot um, of that. Sometimes, but it's usually, can you go down to the office or can you go down to the archive and can you do this? But, yeah, I do get involved in things, but um, not the technical things. I'm not technical. I know, well, that's fair enough. Neither am I. I don't even know if this thing's recorded, to be honest. <laughs> There's a red light that says it is. <laughs> it's just a free therapy session. Well, it, well, for whom? Me? Yeah. Oh, thanks very much. So, in sort of summing up, do you think... Well, I mean, I know what the answer to this is going to be, but I can you sort of sum up in, in exactly what way? But presumably meeting Phil and everything else that goes with that and all these things... They can have a negative effect on your life, obviously, because the amount of time he spends away and you don't necessarily know where he's going to be or how long he's going to be for. And sometimes, as you say, he'll disappear for a day and he'll turn into a month. Obviously, that's a negative side. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you wouldn't still be here if the positive side didn't outweigh the negative side. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, is the positive side... How can I phrase this without making it sound a bit weird? Is the positive side him... Or is the positive side him and the things that go with him? Mm, I think it's him and what goes with him. Yeah, because I have to say, my life has certainly changed since I got involved with Phil and met Phil. And even though he's not here, and it is hard, you get used to it. um, But I would say life is for the better. And I suppose actually, when he's away like that, you just look forward to the times when he comes back all the more and make more of them. I think we do. I think we have more quality time when he's home yeah definitely well that's brilliant thank you for that little insight into what it's like living with the man with the hat (laughs) you want to yeah I was just just gonna say I I get the impression just I've been sitting here listening and I'm sorry I've not had many questions but um, I just get the impression you have a shared purpose I think we do yeah I think we do 
I think we understand what each other really well, don't we? What each other wants, and the focus is there from both of us. And I think it'll be hard. Phil, I'm blowing me on trumpet now, but I think it'll be hard for Phil to do what he did and not have somebody back at home um, as well. I think that's important to know what there is to come back to sometimes as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, thank you both for... Uh, well, thank you, Joanne. Thank you. <laughs> for chatting with us. Thank you very much. And now I'm with Dick Fiddy of the BFI... Uh, who was also on the panel you'll have heard earlier and just a couple of questions for Dick you're a bit short of time but question one when you were 12 or however and you went into your school uh, you know careers meeting I'm sure you didn't want to I'm sure you didn't tell the careers officer I'm going to spend my life curating old films so how did you go from being a 12-year-old who was enjoying things like Doctor Who on the telly to being somebody who looks after that kind of thing for a living? It was a complete accident because at that time this, the job that I do didn't exist. There wasn't, the same, um, there wasn't the same attitude towards the archiving and writing about the history of television as there was for, let's say, film or theatre or literature. Um, so I lucked into it. I was always interested in television, always had a very good memory for the stuff I'd watched in the days before you could refer to a videotape recording. Um, and I loved it. I had a passion for it. Um, one time I found myself back in London after doing a few years travelling around Europe and uh, the Scala Cinema was showing old episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I hadn't seen since they went out. Uh, so I went and saw them. Uh, the guy that was running the cinema said, we're going to do more TV, but there's not many of you here. Spread the word. And then a month or so later, they did the Avengers, and, and a few hundred people turned up. Uh, afterwards, they decided that they'd uh, ask some of them if they wanted to get involved in a meeting, talking about what to do about looking after old television. So I went to that meeting. The long and the short of it is from that meeting, they formed a group called Wider Television Access. Wider Television Access, with the money made from the Scala screenings, showed um, uh, made, uh, launched a magazine called Primetime. I worked on the magazine writing about the history of television. And then when the BFI started, uh, decided to open the Museum of the Moving Image, they needed someone to write about the history of television. They came to prime time, and most of the other editorial staff had full-time jobs, but I didn't. I was working in pubs. So I said, yeah, I can, uh, I can take a couple of years off and write you the history of television for the museum, which I did. And that sort of put my feet under the door of the BFI, uh, or in the door of the BFI. And then... When they decided on the back of Momi that they were going to start treating television more seriously and start looking at it properly, they appointed a television officer uh, and she employed me uh, as often as she could to research seasons um, and we did the programming together for a long time. It became a good partnership there because we had um, opposite strengths. She was very good on the classics and soap opera. I was very good on cult genre. We were both uh, good on... Um, straight dramas and probably equally good but in different areas on documentaries. And of course by seasons you mean seasons of programming at the... Yeah, we, we show TV in seasons the same way we might show films, so we might do a Kirk Douglas season or we might do a season on Jack Gold's television work. Um, so that was how I got there. He didn't need qualifications because, as I say, there was no route. But after the internet came around and after 
a lot of people started taking um, TV history more seriously, writing more books. It became bigger business. Then suddenly there is there there is a career path now. People can decide very early on and go to university and do courses and learn how to curate and archive television. And then the other question that comes out of that is, and you know, people listening to this podcast will know about missing episodes of Doctor Who and the restoration team and that sort of thing, but might not know the wider picture. So the other question that comes out of that is, who are the BFI and why are they important? BFI used to stand for the British Film Institute, although they prefer the term BFI because it's snappier. Um, they have been, they were, they were commissioned by Royal Charter to look after the history of world cinema. And in the early 60s or mid 60s, television was co- incorporated within that charter. Um, the BFI are the official archivists of ITV. ITV was made up of a number of regional broadcasters. There was no central archive, so the BFI took that role. Um, and it's been since, probably since the 70s, it's true to say, since the late 70s, it's been more seriously involved in television and more seriously involved in building a television archive. Um, we look at world cinema, but because of the way we operate, we can only really study British television. The reason we're able to show television on the big screen is because of an arrangement we have with the Trumviat of the three craft unions, Equity, the Writers Guild and the MU. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. But that, um, that doesn't allow us to show world television, although we have done in the past, but we have to go through different doorways to get that. Either work directly with the broadcasters or work directly with people who want to release it to us. So... <coughs> I'm going to make a slight recommendation now, and my recommendation is this. If you grew up during any of the years of the 1960s or the 1970s or even the 1980s, I'm going to recommend you go along to the BFI website, look up their shop, and find the things that you enjoyed so much on television back in those days, because many of them are out now on DVD and Blu-ray from the BFI. All spruced up and looking lovely, and I know this because I reviewed a few of them for the magazine and they're excellent you do great work thank you for talking to me it's a pleasure well that was dick fiddy then and now you're back to jr and simon um well i hope people listening to this will have got a bit more of a picture of who all these people are mm. we've got I, we've got more of a picture of some of our listeners as well haven't we it was nice doing the starburst thing we did bump into a few people a few yeah faces to voices and emails and things yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah. I'm bumping into Peter. Peter Cavana. Yeah, he's a very funny man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were in, we were crying with laughter by the end of some of those conversations. That was really funny. Oh, we had a good time. Mm. I think if they continue with these, and hopefully the amount of people who come along will build up, because it was a lovely, relaxed day, mm. Mm. and uh, there was plenty to do and plenty of things to see. And probably, I mean, we were only there for the one day because all the Doctor Who content was there and we got things to get back for and reasons why we couldn't come up earlier. But, yeah, it looked like it was probably going to be a smashing weekend and and it wasn't hideously expensive, especially for the amount of stuff that's on. Mm-hmm. So if they continue to do these every year, that would be brilliant. Next year, if they do another one, we'd have to do a Blue Box podcast from the event, I should think. Yeah. I mean, they're the best, the best of the events are the ones where it becomes this... Um, quite an intimate and relaxed affair it you know it was um it's nice chatting to katie manning for a little bit and uh who else do we speak to oh lots of people toby whithouse bumped into toby whithouse 
Mm -hmm. And, of course, there'll be um, another panel and another short interview on a podcast either next week or the week after, probably in two weeks, because we, we're having to shuffle these around with things we've already recorded. So, yeah, there'll be another panel in a couple of weeks and uh, a little bit more about who else was there as well. But, I mean, until then, I, I was JR. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon. But before we do, I'm back. Because as I was mixing this podcast, an opportunity came up that was just too good to pass by. So I have decided to add a little extra to the end of this podcast. Um, any regular listeners will know that for the past several years, the Wireless Theatre Company have been telling the story of Spring-Heeled Jack. And I've reviewed a couple of episodes on this podcast and on the Starburst magazine website. So it's something I've been following. And the very last instalment is due for release sometime towards the end of September. And the Wireless Theatre Company got in touch and asked me if I'd like to have an exclusive clip from that final episode to uh, stick on the end of the podcast. And as it came in, as I was mixing this episode of the podcast down, this is the podcast on which that clip from the very final episode of the Spring Heel Saga is going to go on. Uh, if you like what you hear, or if you like what you've read about in the reviews or heard about on the podcast... Uh, I would get along to uh, wirelesstheatrecompany.co.uk, look up the Springheel saga, the saga of Springheeled Jack, and you can find all the previous episodes there, and at the end of the month you'll be able to find the next episode there. They're not expensive, and they are well worth a listen. So have a listen to this, and I can exclusively reveal the final episode is called The Lords of the World, and see what you think. Anstruther? No news from my agents as yet, Prime Minister. Well, there had better be, and soon. Sir. Ponsonby is aware that we've not been as honest with the Queen as we should have been. And if they find out we knew about the Germans on our doorstep, they'll be held to pay. That rather depends on whether my men succeed or fail. What do you mean? The Germans will fight to the end for that weaponry because the power that possesses it will be unchallenged for decades. Yes. That would be a disaster, but if we were to obtain it instead... Oh, I see. Yes, Russia could be kept out of India once and for all. We could turn the tide in Turkey, force a solution to the Eastern question, finally secure Afghanistan, win total dominance in the great game. A dream come true. Uh, yes, sir. But if I may, why not think bigger... We could reclaim the Americas, have half the world under British rule, and that's just to start with. Print the entire map pink, eh? The power of the Jabberwock could mean that you alone ensured the dominance of the British Empire over world affairs for the next century, if not forever. That would be quite a legacy, sir. Queen Victoria, Empress of the Globe. Just answer me this. If we were to wield that power, where might it end?